0: I'm Matthew Moore, and this is The Art and the Artist. Have you ever met one of your idols, like... The singer from the band whose song lyrics you have tattooed on your arm? Well, I met that guy before I had the tattoo, but I think you know what I mean. There's something really special about the connection that a fan gets with the song or the film that they love. If you're like me, you can probably remember the first time you heard that song or saw that movie. I was a freshman in high school, secretly watching television in my room late at night. And on our satellite TV, we had a music video channel called Fuse. Imagine MTV, but just music videos. And as I'm laying in bed, mesmerized by each song on the countdown, a new one pops up that I had never heard before. The opening lick of that guitar line hooked me instantly. That song was Dare You to Move by Switchfoot. Over the years, that song and that band really stuck with me. Now, my taste has grown and morphed over the last 15 years, but I'll never forget that first love of that song. Now, I'm not here to break any news about Switchfoot. Don't worry, world. John Foreman and Switchfoot haven't done anything that's extremely problematic, as far as I know. But the point I want to make here is that it can be really hard to separate that emotional connection you have to a song, a film, a painting, from the art itself. God forbid, if something were to come out about John Foreman, I can't imagine how I'd feel about having his lyrics tattooed on me. And yet, here we are, in the midst of the Me Too movement, where it seems artists from all arenas are being called out for their bad behavior, and we are forced to reckon with what to do with them as artists and the art they've created. If you'll remember back to episode one, Dr. Doyle tells us that it is our duty and our job as consumers of art to separate the object from the person. But, damn, that's really hard. Even for people who play and teach music for a living, like Professor Jake Herzog.
1: Um, well, I'm a jazz guitar player and a rock guitar player and an educator and a music producer and a songwriter, and now I get to teach a lot of those things in my, my role here at University of Arkansas.
0: When I asked Jake to give me a concrete example of someone, it seemed like the one that we all knew this podcast was going to cover at some point.
1: Well, I could definitely give you an example that was pertinent to me, um, which is Michael Jackson, which probably a lot of people say that. But but the reason why is <laughs> for for me, um Michael Jackson Dangerous was the very first CD I ever bought with my own money that I, you know, I mowed lawns and stuff to try to save up money to buy records. Um, which sounds ludicrous to say that out
0: loud now, doesn't it? For some generations, it may have been your first record. For others, tape or CD. Whatever that first album was for you, and however you acquired it, there's something magical about finally getting to choose what you want to listen to. And as a youngster, we don't always think about the nuance or complexities involved and what it means to be an artist.
1: At that age, you you, you can't intellectualize it. You just, You just go, oh, well, if that's... If that's bad and I don't want to break any rules, then let me not do that, right? So I think that's probably about as sophisticated as my thinking would have gotten with that as a teenager or a high school student.
2: I seem to remember even years ago as being like in elementary school. This
0: is Austin Cash, the station manager for KXUA the University of Arkansas' student radio station. And joking with friends,
2: because Michael Jackson was so ubiquitous, like, joking with friends about him uh, being a child molester. Not that we really knew what that meant, or uh, that that was an accusation that, like, carried any significant weight to us. But that was... My idea of Michael Jackson is kind of
0: tethered to that. I spoke with another professor about how Michael Jackson and his art affected her family.
3: Uh, My name is Valandra, and I am an associate professor in the School of Social Work and also uh, joint faculty in African and African-American studies, and I'm also the director of the African and African-American studies program. One of the early discussions that, that comes to my mind is Michael Jackson. Um, Particularly, I have have one of my sisters really loved, you know, Michael Jackson's album, Ben. And I remember early on having some uh, conversation about, at least there was, there was, I don't know exactly what the allegations, the specific allegations were, but there was an allegation that he was a child molester in some form or some fashion. And I remember having, trying to have a dialogue about that with uh, one of my uh, sisters and she wasn't having it. He was like, nope, this guy is perfect, and that's, n- we're not going to discuss it.
0: With hindsight being 2020, we're pretty aware now that Michael Jackson was far from perfect. But is the art of Michael Jackson and the personhood of Michael Jackson two separate things? Here's Jake again.
1: Yeah, I do think they're two separate things. And I, and I'll tell you why. Me, me as a person, I don't I don't have that line. We miss the nuance here, which is that that some some people's deep failings are the reason why they create the art that they do. I think judging the art by the non-artistic activities of the person who created it h- has nothing to do with what the art is. It doesn't make Michael Jackson's music better or worse if he assaulted somebody. It makes him a worse person, but it doesn't make his music worse, right? You know, if we if we start to apply censorship that is not based on artistic merit, then we have lost our ability to define artistic
0: merit. Austin has a slightly different stance.
2: For me listening to Michael Jackson when I hear it now, if it's in a grocery store, or on a commercial or whatever, my experience is tied to what I heard those men in Leaving Neverland say. So for me, it makes it uh, totally joyless and really just starts
0: making me think about that. Dr. Valandra has a unique perspective when it comes to this topic because of her professional experience.
3: My area of research is is, is around, you know, child abuse and sexual violence and all these forms of a violence, particularly as the way in which they're experienced in African American uh, families and, and how African Americans are kind of generally depicted in this society, n- not so much in terms of being victims, but uh, engaging in criminal behavior and kind of the dynamics of that in relation to how, uh, you know, who, who gets to be a victim and who's a perpetrator and what does a victim look like and then how does that shape the way we deliver services. So basically having this conversation, I was bumping up against you know, this construction of this innocent child who's a hero for a long, long, long time in many ways. And I was kind of like, this is a counter narrative that I was trying to broach with her that you know he could also he, could he be both? You know uh, Actually, at that time I wasn't saying both. I was I was really saying like, hey, wait a minute. You know, this guy who does done all these wonderful things and, you know, save the children and bless the children and save the world and peace to everyone. I mean, these are the themes that some of them, you know, that, that were in his music at that time. And then we find out here he is abusing children.
0: Jake Herzog again.
1: You're trying to separate the, the quality of the person from the quality of the art. And, and I don't, I don't really think that, I don't really think that makes any sense in this situation because because you can you can be a high quality person and make terrible music. You can be a, an asshole and and make uh, brilliant music. Um, and will that music reflect who you are? Yes, but the idea of whether music reflects on somebody is not correlated to how great of music it is. You know the. the the quality of art is different than the quality of the person who made the art. But yet, the artist and the per, uh, and the art are inexorably connected. The, the art cannot come from a different kind of a person. And we need, uh, we need to be okay with those two things simultaneously as a society. We need to be okay with the idea that we have the power to consume media, art, etc. For simply its effect on us, not what it says about us i think those are two different things that have to be allowed to coexist you know i i might listen to michael jackson song uh pretty young thing and say wow what a great song what a cool chords you know and that's that's what it means to me somebody else might listen to that song and say oh my God, this now takes on a serious sicko dimension. You know, this is the, the, the spawn of the devil, whatever, right? I can't listen to that. Or that's what it thats what it means to them. The nature of art is that it means different things to different people, and we have to be okay with that.
0: Before we shift gears, I want to give Dr. Valandra the last word here.
3: Okay, so does that mean that we don't listen to Michael Jackson's music anymore? And I said, no, I don't think that that's what it means. You know, I, I think that uh, it really means that You let in the possibility that here we have, you know, this great artist who, just like anybody else, is a human being who can engage in harmful and criminal behavior. And so I said, well, I'm going to, and the Thriller album is the album that's like, I love that album. I'm going to listen to it. But just the other day, I was, I had my playlist on Shuffle or something like that. And one of his songs came up that I can't remember the name of it, but it was about saving the little children or something like that. And I turned it. I said, no, I cannot listen to that. I can't listen to this man singing about, you know, save the little children and save the world, knowing that he sexually exploited children and, you know, particularly boys. But I can listen to Thriller. I don't see the conflict there, but that one, that song was like, mm No, I just turned it. It was a surprise to me, but I did it. I was like, it just hit me inside. Like, no, not, no, that is that message is so inconsistent with your behavior. Can't listen to that. But thriller, yes, I'm gonna listen to that. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
4: Hi, I'm Isaac.
5: Hi, my name's Sarah. Hi, I'm Lexi, and my favorite jam is Best Love Song by T-Pain. And while I was never a super avid fan of John Chris, who's a Christian comedian, His videos would pop up on my Facebook page and I'd occasionally laugh at his easy and cheap humor. And
4: one of the artists that I struggle with, who's now dead, is Michael Jackson. Um, And I struggle with him not because of the allegations of his past actions, but his response to those allegations. He was accused of pedophilia at his ranch. He was accused of... Um, like having these children who are estranged and not estranged and estranged again. Um, He really disassociated himself with the African-American community. And if you know about Michael Jackson, he was a huge staple um, for the African-American community and like even a part of how African-Americans and blackness was seen um, through the lenses of music. I thought
0: I was a T-Pain fan. He seemed like he had a really goofy demeanor and was... uh had fun music that I could really jam along with. But
5: I won't be engaging with his material anymore because I can't support uh, his behavior towards women. But
0: one Father's Day, he
5: had a really inappropriate Instagram post kind of um, making fun of baby daddies. Even with his half-ass apology that he released, I won't um, support him in any form, like by even like giving his videos more views or whatever His
4: just numbness and indifference to a lot of the claims and the allegations uh, along with his dissociation with the african-american community just makes him a struggle for me to listen to even when you're at a party or when you're just hearing played on the radio and
5: since then i've had a hard time just like separating that from his music so i feel a little guilty every time i'm jamming out
4: i just can't do it anymore
0: There's obviously a lot of artists who we could have talked about on this podcast. And that's part of the reason I wanted to do a listener call-in portion of the show, which you just heard. So in the last half of our episode today, instead of focusing our attention on one specific artist, like we've been doing so far, I want to spend our time really trying to dive in and find the crux of this issue— What is it about artists in particular that leave us with so much internal conflict when it comes to issues like this? In an attempt to make ourselves feel better about all of this, there is this option of uh, revisionist history that we can impose on art, but that can be problematic. We're seeing this, for example, with Bill Cosby and his groundbreaking work with the television show, The Cosby Show. I asked Dr. Valandra if she was able to separate Bill Cosby, the TV game changer, and Bill Cosby, the man.
3: That's a that's a wonderful question. And this is what I think in, in in your question, I think the answer lies right there when you talked about Bill Cosby, the man. You can't, I don't believe that you can diminish any of that and that you don't have to diminish any of that to hold him accountable for his individual behavior.
2: I wouldn't want anyone to revise history because of what someone
0: did in their personal life austin cash again
2: you take him out of you know whatever hall of fame bill cosby previously resided in because it's a bad look to have bill cosby's name anywhere because it's you know it's radioactive like bill cosby in the 20th century is a net gain for black people in america so one kind of wonders if what he did undid that to some extent.
0: And maybe there is more to these stories than just the artists on their pedestals. Maybe we aren't considering other factors that could be involved.
3: And I also think that in some ways, one of the, one of the issues that doesn't get articulated well in relation to looking at sexual exploitation that entertainers or artists do, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. There are many people around them There are many people who are making decisions with them that contribute and facilitate their ability to exploit others.
5: So I'm Timothy Dennis, and I'm a producer at KUAF Public Radio here in Fayetteville.
0: When Timothy and I talked, the topic of Chuck Berry came up.
5: Now, on the other hand, you have someone like Chuck Berry, who has done some despicable things or did despicable things in his life. Yet people still regard him as kind of this trendsetter, as kind of the godfather of something, and they really kind of look past what he did.
0: So can you separate the art from the artist?
5: I think it just depends on who it is, what the infractions are, and how influential the music is. Because, I mean, in 30 years, are we really going to remember Ryan Adams and the mark he made on modern folk music, on modern contemporary indie folk? My gut feeling is no. But, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball to tell that. There was one
0: really important takeaway I heard from nearly every person I interviewed for this podcast. Take a listen to all these sound bites and see if you can find the common thread here.
1: We have to be able to to deal with the fact that people are complicated and, and artists are sometimes extraordinarily
2: complicated. The only reason I think we want to separate the art from the artists at all is that we don't view artists as people at all. And when they do something that is heinous, that kind of humanizes them, we want to get that away uh, from this thing that means so much to us.
3: What I hope changes is the way we treat artists. I, I would hope that in the future that we would be able to see artists like we see anyone else, that they would be compensated for their work but not extravagantly. So I guess what I feel like is what I would like to see changed is the way society views and looks at art and artists that put it in perspective with everything else. No one should be making billions and billions of dollars unless social workers are too. And teachers are too. If they're making billions and billions of dollars for Having an influence on the education of our children and the next generation and just the way we would pay an artist billions of dollars, you know, for a song or for a piece of artwork or something like that, then I'm okay with it. But it's so lopsided. That's what I would like to see changed in the future. If you're
5: talking about the inseparability of the artist and the artwork, it becomes very hard to live your life and to make mistakes, you know, and to... And, and to do something that you regret without like ruining your life's work, you know, and uh, that's not to say that people shouldn't be accountable, but it's also, you know, I, depending on the circumstance that we're talking about, like where that line is, I think is a challenging thing because it does weigh heavily on how you view an artwork, is to like know the actions and behaviors of that individual.
0: As I was having these conversations, I kept walking away from them with this voice in my head shouting at me.
5: Of course you don't
0: want to separate the art from the artist because you don't look at the artist as a human being. I mean, aren't we all guilty of this sometimes? This is why the meet and greet at a concert is available at an extra fee, of course. This is why people try and sneak backstage at a music festival. It's why we wear band t-shirts. We buy their records on vinyl. We get excited to see them make our end-of-the-year list on Spotify. These artists aren't people. They're a data point. A product. An item on our bucket list. An emotion that we're incapable of experiencing naturally. Maybe these artists aren't the problem. Maybe we are. One last thing. If you'll recall from our first episode, I talked to David Andre about the studio, a painting from Larry Rivers. I asked David if it was still on exhibit at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and he wasn't sure. So I decided to do some research myself and saw that it was not currently on display in the museum and decided to try and reach out to somebody there. Unfortunately, I did not have it in the budget to fly to Minneapolis and do this interview with Robert in person. So as you can obviously tell, our conversation happened over the phone. As we think about the artists of the past we've talked about already, there's a chance that next time you walk around an art museum, you might be like me and have this thought. Hmm, I wonder if this artist has done anything problematic. I asked Robert if the reason the studio was no longer on exhibit at his museum was for the reasons we talked about in the previous episode. I would say that at the Minneapolis Institute thus far, we have not, uh, we have not chosen to take anything down because of any kinds of alle- allegations. Robert goes on to tell me about how he is a part of a cohort of curators around the country who are making strides to try and make museums more diverse in a number of ways. There's a relatively new group of curators
6: that are joining other kinds of colleagues at the institution doing IDEA work and being really forthright about um, not just working with communities, but really inviting communities to be equal part
0: collaborators and decolonizing the museum from lots of different points of view. He hopes that by intentionally working with underrepresented communities in the world of art, they can make the museum a place where people can be inspired, but also interact with art made by people who look and act like them. As far as the studio goes, it will actually be going back on
6: view. Um, But we are actually going to put it up sometime in the new year because I acquired a painting for the Minneapolis Institute, a major picture um, from 1965 by an artist named Martha Edelheit, who is a contemporary of Larry Rivers Um, and it's a painting she did and exhibited in New York in the mid-60s that's all female nudes. The setting is actually in the picture, like Larry Rivers is, along with the implements of her painting. And the painting is almost identical in its dimensions. So it's 80 by 195 inches. And I've asked Martha Edelheid if she did this picture, because it is uncannily uh, similar in its composition and its theme, except it is explicitly feminist, um, if it was a reaction to Larry Rivers' painting. and she said it wasn't, um, and she was delighted to find out that now there are these two paintings of almost the same scale with similar themes from two different kinds of viewpoints. So we're going to put them up together um, and have people sort of contend with the differences and um, the specific kind of themes of each one, from a female point of view and a male point of view. It needs a little conservation work, but once it's done, the plan is to put it and the rivers up together. and. Um, you know, just have it be a, a way for people to sort of talk about what those differences are and, you know, also the cultural
0: issues that are around both kinds of looking. I asked Robert if he planned on putting up any sort of supplementary wording next to the painting of Larry Rivers, and he said it was far too early in the process to be thinking about specifically what would be accompanying that art. When it comes to thinking about an artist and their biography, though, he seemed conflicted. I mean, I don't think that an artist...
6: They're living at a moment and making a thing at a particular period of time. And so, um, but I do think that it can come off as, um, you know, sensational or, or wallowing in the gratuitous aspects of um, biography if it's not connected in some way. And so, that's not to say that I don't think we should be not discussing these things, but I think that sometimes um, the best political way of dealing with those, I think, from a, a curatorial point of view is, you know, maybe rotating those things off view because you are making way for other kinds of objects, or you're deliberately uh, putting a framework around those things that is alternate points of view or works of art that are challenging it, um, because then that object and that artist is going to have to stand up to that in the moment in the gallery. And I think viewers are sometimes going to pick up on that right away. Having the difficult conversations around problematic material, whether it's um, hard to sort of hard to look at images of terrible things that happened in the past that artists are making in order to draw attention to it or it's work by people who are problematic you know not avoiding those conversations but actually talking about them and confronting them um, I think is really
0: something that we're going to have to do. Um, It's really important to do. Next week, the future.